Yesterday, uh, I was at the men's conference at uh, Redemption, and I was uh, asked to speak on the topic of suffering. Whenever you're asked to speak on a topic like that, you there's a lot of hesitation. Nobody wants to say I'm a pro at suffering, right? Nobody wants to admit that they have got it all figured out either. Um, and what I'm sharing this morning, there's bits and pieces that I had shared yesterday, but there's a lot here that's also new that I've been trying to work through myself. When I, when I finished my message yesterday, actually it was a seminar talk, um, what I found was, that was quite astonishing was how many guys came up to talk to me about their sufferings. One gentleman, he introduced himself. He had the same name as me, which was ironic, the exact same name, Andrew Hall, and he began to share his story of suffering. Another man came to me and began to talk about his own uh, griefs and pains and how the last year had been one of the worst that he and his family had ever experienced. Others just shared story after story, and it wasn't one of the things that I was really looking forward to. You don't share on suffering because you want everybody to tell you how terrible life has been. And yet there's something incredible about what I saw from each one of those guys. That in the midst of all of the pains and sorrows and sufferings, each one was able in some way, shape, or form to testify to how they had grown in their dependence and trust upon God and, and felt a reliance upon Him in a new and fresh way and how encouraged they had been just in their time. It's as though it was like a, a floodgate just opened up. And when the floodgates open up, the things that we don't typically talk about suddenly start to come out. Because we try to look like we've got it all together and the reality is that each one of us bears burdens and pains. There are sorrows and sufferings that are sometimes so great that it is almost impossible for us to put words to. The fact that people could, could testify to joy in Jesus, it reminded me of the quote of, uh, it's been attributed to Spurgeon. I've never found its source, and so it's probably one of those sayings that sounds Spurgeon-esque, but probably wasn't Spurgeon who said it. But it was something like, I have learned to kiss the wave that has thrown me against the rock of ages. And so I wanted to wrestle with this question. James says it right here, count it joy. Count it all joy. He says all joy. I think other translations say pure joy. When you face trials and when you meet trials of various kinds. And so I wanted to ask the question, how is it that you can have joy when you face incredible trials? And I'm just going to take two things from James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and 4, and just build on that this morning and just try to think um, and share a little bit of how I've been trying to think and learn through these, these things. So the first thing that I want us to see is that what God is doing is that he is, uh, he is taking faith and he is testing it and steadying it. So let's take a look at what this means when when James says that our faith is tested and steadied, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
I've, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm not very original when I make my points. You can often see where my point comes from. But that, uh, as James says here, it is our faith that is being tested so that it would produce a steadfastness. I think we need to understand and maybe define what suffering is. We, we all know it by experience. But what is suffering? Suffering, I, I want to define it this way, is any experience that doesn't fulfill our sense of well-being and calls into question our identity and purpose. This is what suffering is. is it's, it, it challenges my well-being. And what I call into question then is my own identity and my own purpose. That somehow what suffering does is it's confronting me in a way that it, it's challenging. Who am I and what am I about? We all have experienced suffering, but I think there's three primary causes that bring about suffering. I'll just, oh, I'm overly simplifying here but we'll understand how complicated it is in a moment. I think first there is the reality that when you suffer, it's because something first, there's been some sort of wrongdoing done to you or you have done wrong. So we can look at the book of James, and James is writing to persecuted Christians who are in exile, who've lost jobs, who've lost friendships, and as a result of the wrong done to them as Christians, they've had to flee and scatter, and so they're suffering. And so James is calling them to steadfastness and maturity. But there's also the sense in which we do wrong and it causes us great difficulty. If, if you were to, um, for example, uh, eat, choose to eat too much on a consistent basis, it would cause you health issues. And gluttony is a sin in the Bible. And as a result of that, if you overeat and you indulge, there's going to be issues that will come up in your life. And so there's a sense of wrongdoing. That's just overly simplifying it. There's also the sense that we live in, second of all, a, a world where there is the curse. That in Genesis 3, what God had said when Adam and Eve had rebelled against them, and Adam as covenant head who represented all of humanity, when he sinned, God said, there's going to be trials and thorns and thistles in your work. And for Eve, there's going to be pain in childbearing. There wasn't a direct curse upon the man or the woman, but upon their, their world, their work, and their relationships. And as a result of that, we know that there are all sorts of difficulties that happen to us. There are natural disasters. A fire happens and it burns down a home. A storm comes through and it causes destruction of property. And so as a result of those types of things, we know that there is the reality of living in a Genesis 3 world. But it goes beyond that. It goes into things like people get cancer, cells metastasize, and suddenly you're faced with a life-threatening diagnosis. Or there's some other type of chemical imbalance that suddenly you struggle with your own disposition because maybe because of a chemical imbalance in the brain that, that you just, you struggle maybe to focus, you struggle with depression, or there's something there that causes you to, to feel that life is harder than you could have ever imagined. Or, uh, well, I, th I think of how uh, 
Um, let me give one example from Scripture. In, in John 9, uh, the disciples come across a man who's blind, and they ask Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin or his parents sin? And Jesus' response is, neither. It's, it's not, uh, it's not, there's not always a direct cause and effect relationship. It's just the fact that sometimes we're in this world, we experience sufferings and we experience hardships. There's a third reason. We find this in the book of Job. Then in Job 1 and 2, God says, look it, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, I'm going to test him if you'll let me. And God sets the limits and parameters of that testing, and there is some sort of spiritual conflict that is going on. Now, I've oversimplified this, but these things also intersect. There can be spiritual conflict that you're totally unaware of, that exists in a natural disaster. We see that in the book of Job. Job loses children. He loses belongings and possessions because natural raiders come and they steal from him and a storm knocks down the home where his children are partying. And as a result of that, he loses his children. There's also the realities that sometimes we make foolish choices and natural disasters happen. Like if you build your house on a floodplain and a flood happens there, That's foolishness. That's both the consequences of building your home where you shouldn't and the reality that there are disasters like floods that happen in floodplains. And so we can also recognize, too, things like a conscience can be troubled and anxiety or depression can set in because of sin. So we have to understand that suffering is incredibly complex in terms of how it comes at us. And yet, James is wanting us in the midst of this, if, if there is no obvious connection between suffering and sin, then he wants us to see what God is doing. Now, if, if we can stop and say there is an obvious reason, a connection between my sin and my suffering, then the very first thing that we ought to do is that that is a testing of our faith that is calling us to repentance. It's calling us to turn back to God. It's calling us to, to flee to Him and run to Him and find mercy that His arms are wide open. And so, Suffering, that is, because we have sinned, does not mean that we should run further from God, but to run towards Him. But if there's no obvious connection between our suffering and our sin, and, and sin, then we need to also understand this nature of this testing that God is doing. Peter will say it in, in uh, 1 Peter 1.7, that your faith is being tested so that it, be may, it may be refined, so that it may be pure as gold refined in the fire. But we have to also understand that in our day, suffering is almost entirely seen as completely negative. In the DSM-5, uh, that's the diagnostic... Uh, I lost my words. Anybody know? Some counselors here. DSM-5. DSM. Diagnostic. Say it louder, please, for my help. Well, anyway, it's the, it's the mental health Bible. DSM-5. If you want to know what it stands for, diagnostic something manual. And it's the fifth edition. Um. And I'm trying to fit into it right now because I can't remember. 
Um, and I'm experiencing my own kind of suffering here now because I'm lacking in my memory. Um, in DSM-5, it, it almost equates all, almost all suffering to that which is negative. That, that it is, is almost entirely viewed as something that, that has to be dealt with. The modern mindset, you see, has this idea, you can see it in the Declaration of Independence in the United States, that we exist to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our understanding of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is ultimately liberty means that I have the freedom to choose and do whatever I want without consequence. And happiness means that I should have this sense of completion and of well-being. Which means that in the modern day, because this has become our, going back to the definition of suffering that I gave you, because suffering threatens my identity and my purpose, then what the modern mindset is, is that anything that threatens my own well-being, I ought to cut off and eliminate. So we see this today in various ways. If you say something that threatens my emotional well-being, I need to eliminate you, which is why freedom of speech today is under threat. It's because freedom of speech is seen as a threat to modern happiness, which is the ultimate goal and purpose of people. But not only that, but if you're the kind of person who's in my life who causes me grief or pain, rather than dealing with it, what I do is I cut you off. I ghost you, is one of the modern terms. I just disappear from your life. I don't give you an explanation, and I don't have to suffer failing to realize that we're actually causing suffering for the other person because we've given them no explanation, no understanding. And we have this mental and rational idea in this technological society where we think that we can use processes and technique to solve every problem because we are so convinced coming out of the enlightenment that we think, and therefore because we think that we are able to control things, that... What do you hear people say when, when they go through a, a case of suffering? I want to ensure that no one ever has to go through what I've gone through ever again. Haven't you heard that? So, some form? In one sense, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find ways to cope. We're trying to find a way to survive. We're trying to figure out, like, how do I, how do I navigate this life? But suffering is a reality in this world. And yes, we ought to work to decrease suffering that is unnecessary. And yet, suffering cannot be eliminated. And the reason for that is we live in a Genesis 3 world. And in light of that, as Christians, we have to face this reality. Until Jesus comes again, what we are aiming for is that we are aiming to find true happiness in our purpose and identity so that it's not merely coping and surviving, but thriving. One of the, I've, I've often talked about Luther, and Luther has become this dead friend of mine. And when I say that, I know it makes people nervous. But he's a friend in the sense that I love having conversations with him. Now, before you think that I have something wrong with me, what I mean by that is, Luther has become for me a dialogue partner. I read him, and, and he 
sheds insight into my world and I can see more clearly in his world because we're in different time spaces. And so as a result of that, when I read his work and I hear him, he makes me think in ways that other writers in this day and age don't make me think. And so we've, we've had this dialogue going on for probably 15 years. And he's become, for me, someone that I really identify with. For Luther, he, he struggled from the very beginning of his life with Anfechtungen, is what he would call it, this sense of dread. And, and as, he, as he, on one occasion, was traveling and a storm came up and, and he was in an open field and lightning was flashing all around and a big thunder crash happened near him, he fell to the ground and he cried out, St. Anne, save me, being a good Roman Catholic that he was. As a result of that, as he was spared and the storm passed, he decided that he would devote himself to the study of God and the things of God as a monk. And so he became an Augustinian monk. And yet, when he went into the monastery and he began his practice as a monk, one of the practices that they have had was daily confession. And, and, and von Staupitz, who was Luther's confessor, he would go to him and, and, and von Staupitz would say, like, Luther, you just got to stop all this confessing. You're confessing your confessions. This is getting quite ridiculous. And so he set him on a trajectory of studying the Bible and studying the Psalms and the Word of God. This is what was typical for an Augustinian monk, is you had to memorize the entire book of Psalms. So you set him out to study and memorize the book of Psalms. And as Luther began to study the Word of God, the Word of God began to shape him, and it began to deal with this issue. And as, as he looked at Scripture over and over, he saw that his unfecting was caused by three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And for him, this, this reality caused him then to, to look at that there is something wrong, first of all, with the system, the religious system that he had been brought up in, but also there is this sense in which he needed to understand the grace and mercy of God. And as a result of growing in this understanding of the grace and mercy of God, what he saw was that there are two, two ways to approach God, law and gospel, being a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross. Now, typically when we hear the word glory, we associate it with good things. Luther means it in a, in a negative sense. And when he speaks about being a theologian of glory, what he means is that you're the kind of person who is trying to climb the ladder, that God helps those who help themselves. And so if bad things happen to you, it must be because, well, it's almost like that sense of karma. You're deserving of it. So you need to repent. This is what Job's friend said. Job, you must have done wrong. This is why all this bad stuff has happened. You're, you're falling into the system. What you put in is what you get out. So repent. But that's not, as we know, that's not how suffering actually works. Suffering is far more complicated than that. And what Luther saw is that what suffering would do is it would challenge the theologian of glory because it would challenge their identity and it would challenge their purpose. It would challenge their pride. And yet, we can see that there is still this theology of glory that exists all around us. In fact, it's in all world religions, it's in secularism, it's in self-help books, it's in... There, there's practical things, yes, that you can do and learn so that you cease to suffer. But at the same time, there is something that God is doing powerfully in the act of suffering. 
which is why Luther understood that you could either be a theologian of glory or you could be a theologian of the cross. And what Luther meant by being a theologian of the cross was simply this, that either the cross claims you or you stand opposed to the cross. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. And for Luther, then, this became a framework by understanding that the way that we, the way that we deal with suffering is that suffering comes to us and it confronts the theologian of glory in each of us. It's coming to attack that sense of pride, that sense that I can live without God. And yet the theology of the cross is that my end is my beginning. My death is my life. My crown is through a cross. And that the way up is the way down. That God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so there is not loss in confession, but there is grace. And so in understanding this, just going back to this idea that James has in terms of that your faith would be tested and it would be steadied, that what the cross does is it comes to us and it is aiming to crucify in each of us the theologian of glory. And suffering comes and it reminds us that there is no true joy, there is no true happiness in this life apart from God. If you want proof of this, here's a simple thing that you can think about. When suffering happens to someone who has no relationship with God, who has no regard to God, one of the common things that you hear from people is this. Why did God allow this to happen to me? I can live my life without regard to God, but the minute that my identity and purpose is challenged, what do I do? I call into question the very goodness of God or the very power of God or the very existence of God. Which means, it means that there is a theologian of glory in all of us. That we want to be happy apart from God. That we want to think that we can be okay and that we can find techniques and processes and systems out of suffering. And all of those things, yes, we ought to be working to relieve suffering and we will never eliminate all suffering. And as a result of that, it makes me think of what C.S. Lewis would say. C.S. Lewis would say, God whispers us to in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. You see, God is, is aiming to, to arouse you constantly to your need for him. Because what is faith? Faith is we need to understand what faith is. Faith is believing in God when, when things are difficult and hard. Faith is holding on to the promise of God when everything threatens to grab it out of your grasp. It is not how hard I hold on to God, but it is believing that God holds on to me. Faith is this constant 
understanding that in this world we have trouble, but as Jesus said, we take heart because he has overcome the world. And so this is what, when we go back to this idea of testing and steadying, what God is doing is he is, he is testing and refining to, to pull out that theologian of glory in every single one of us and to put it to death. So faith is tested and it's steadied by this work of suffering that God is doing to, to remove the theologian of glory. It's a lifelong process. But then the second thing is, not only is faith tested, but faith is matured. James says this in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, and I've mentioned this several times, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word perfect, I think, another way to understand it is mature. So that Greek word of having this end goal in mind. And the end goal that God has in mind for us is for our well-being. But if we go back to what I said suffering is, it's anything that challenges our sense of being fulfilled and well-being and our identity and our purpose. One of the things that we have to realize is that in this modern age, the whole idea of identity and purpose for your life is something that our world tells you, you create it. You figure out your identity. So here's how... Here's how our world even does this on a, it's, it's complicated, but in, in our day and age, what is your identity? Who are you? We have no, we have no way in this modern world to understand our own identity. If, if it's something that I have to create, then it puts this incredible burden on me. It actually creates the kind of suffering that is unbearable. Because what if, what if I don't know my identity and I feel as though that I am the wrong gender in the wrong body? I have to create my own identity. This is the, the kind of world that we live in is we have no structure, we have no framework by which to understand what does it mean to be a human being. We have lost this reality. You, you can just listen even this week, I was listening to um, the parliamentary committee had discussed putting aside uh, medical assistance in dying for those who are suffering with, with mental illness. And a, a gentleman was brought on to be interviewed, and he was despairing that he couldn't die. And my heart breaks. My heart breaks that in this world that we have no category for suffering except the idea that I have to eradicate it at any cost. And that creates an enormous burden of suffering in and of itself. It creates an unbearable existence. Because if I have to create my own sense of identity and purpose then what I am going to find is that this life is beyond... There are too many options. And how am I ever going to figure it out? But if my identity and my purpose are not something that I have to create, but that I receive by grace, 
then there is something fundamentally different then. Because then I can say that suffering is doing a good work, which is what James says here. And if suffering is to do a work in me, that it is to test me, it is to refine me, to steady me, and it is to mature me, then I also have this conviction then that God must ultimately be doing something and he must have some purpose for suffering and pain and evil that I don't understand. That he can make suffering serve his purposes by having it exist rather than it not existing. And if that's the case then, then I also have to believe that somehow God is able to do far more abundantly because he is all-powerful. And being an all-powerful God, he's working all things together for his good. Which is why James can say that you consider or count it joy when we face trials because we know these trials are producing in us a testing of our faith that it makes us steadfast. And that steadfastness, what it does is it matures us. It means that God is working in a way that this is not out of his control. This is not random. This is not God testing us as though he's springing on a test to see if you'd fail. But rather, he is working to create a maturity in you and the maturity of a Christian. Faith matured is dependence upon God. Faith matured is dependence upon God. Which is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, when he says to the Corinthians that he was so utterly burdened that he was despairing of life itself. He says, I thought we had received the sentence of death. I thought we were going to die. It was so bad. And I was despairing. This, this just sounds like mental anguish along with physical sufferings. But he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, but this was, was that so that we would not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. You see, Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, could say that Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the Joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. How is it joy for Jesus to go to the cross? In, in Luke 9, 51, this is the turning point in Luke's gospel. The first half is Jesus' ministry. The second half, beginning at Luke 9, 51, it's a turning point. And it says there that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It almost has the language of Isaiah I think it's Isaiah 50, verse 17, where it says, you're setting your face like flint. There's this steadfast resolve. Why is it that good Jesus could, we, the writer of Hebrews can say that Jesus could endure the sufferings of the cross and despise its shame and consider it pure joy? How is it that thorns upon your head and nails through your hands and feet are joy set before you? When you understand that you don't 
create your own identity and purpose, but it is received. The very Son of God, what was his identity and purpose? It was to be the suffering servant that was to go to the cross, that was to endure the punishment for sin, that he would go there to receive that very punishment for sin so that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. And that's what brought him joy. It was joy beyond the cross. Is that he saw beyond the suffering that what his suffering was producing was many sons and daughters for glory. And so he could go to the cross and embrace it and he could be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he could be one that men would turn their faces from as Isaiah 53 describes him. We despised him. And yet he could in all resolve in his identity and purpose go to the cross. You see, in Christ, when we believe in Christ, when we trust in Christ, when we confess sin, Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so all of this idea that suffering is because God is condemning me or he is against me, that needs to be crucified. That's, that's the kind of thinking that needs to be put to death. Because God is not out to destroy Christians, but to create a deeper faith that is matured. And a mature faith is one that depends upon God. And as Lamentations, I think Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And as Lamentations 3 says, that God does not afflict willingly. Jeremiah, or This is Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief... He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. In other words, God's purpose in our suffering is to mature us because there is no other way for the theologian of glory to die. The theologian of glory wants to climb the ladder and think that they are successful apart from God. But the theologian of the cross realizes that I have been crucified with Christ and the cross claims me. And so as a result of that, practically what does it look like? What does it look like to be a person who can embrace suffering with joy? I want to just mention five things really quickly. First is we trust God's sovereign hand. I love how Charles Spurgeon has put it. I've shared this quote before. This quote has been on our fridge. It has been a balm to us in times of hardship. Spurgeon was an eight, a late, uh, late 19th century pastor in London, England. He suffered terribly. He often had to go to the south of Spain to, to get away from the horrendous gray skies of London, England. His gout would flare up. He, he just suffered terribly. But Spurgeon would write and say, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never, fulfilled, never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. In other words, the afflictions that we face have been limited by God. Because God knows how much heat to put on the gold to get the dross out. 
So we trust in a sovereign God who isn't working against us, but he's working for us because he loves you. That, that verse from Lamentations 3, though he caused grief, he doesn't do it from his heart. He does it because th- this is the way for Christ to be formed in us. The second thing is we look to the cross. If Jesus could find his identity and purpose in being the suffering servant, then how much more should we also find that our identity and purpose isn't something that we create, but we look to the cross and we find that we receive it as a gift? That releases us from an enormous burden of suffering that this world is creating. You have been made in the image of God to be loved by God, to be cared by God, and to glorify God and to enjoy God. That's your purpose. You don't have to create another one. So we look to the cross, and then we remember the resurrection. One Catholic scholar says that the reference to Jesus in chapter 2, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He believes that this reference to the Lord of glory is the idea of the resurrected Jesus. And that the church is in suffering was to look to the resurrection because God vindicates those who suffer by raising them from the dead. The resurrection isn't some tack on to the cross. It is essential to the realities of the gospel. It is essential for our hope and our well-being that this suffering is for a short time. Not only do we trust in a sovereign God and look to the cross and remember the resurrection, but I would say with Galatians 6, 1, we bear each other's burdens. We don't suffer alone. We suffer as the people of God together because in suffering together, there is, there is comfort in misery. There is something about having people shoulder the burden with you. And finally, we wait for glory. Paul says in Romans 8, verse seven, uh, 18, he says, For I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. This life is short. 70, 80, maybe 90 years of hardship and toil and affliction, as Moses would say in Psalm 90. And what's after that? Bliss and joy and eternity and happiness forever. So what is this amount of hardship compared to this amount of joy? If joy awaits us in greater measure, then it feeds our joy even now. You see, I'm no expert in suffering. The Lord is still refining me. The Lord is still working to get that dross out of the theologian of glory that still lives in me. But I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son for you so that you would have joy in him. And that as you find your joy in him, you find that the, a purpose and identity that God has has been given to you as a gift so that you might embrace it by faith and that might release you from the pressures and the burdens in this life that can be so overwhelming in a world that says, be whoever you want to be. When God says, I call you my child, 
I call you my friend. Now trust me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in the face of trials and difficulties and pains, that you are working in us when we put our faith in you. You are wanting to do something so that you actually do produce a joy in us that is beyond this life. For many people in this room, there is great anguish today. There is great sorrow. There is loss. There's the challenges of health. There's the challenges of mental health. There are disasters that have happened and economic pressures and all sorts of challenges And this is no indication that you do not love your children, but it is an indication that just as a father disciplines his son, so you discipline us because you love us. We look and we see this, Lord Jesus, in your love by going to the cross. As we are about to partake of a meal that reminds us of the cross, we we pray that you would help us to cling to, to the cross. That if, Lord Jesus, your identity and and your mission and purpose was to go to that cross by looking beyond it to see many sons and daughters being brought to glory, then would you help us to look beyond the present sufferings which don't compare to what you are doing in refining us to be like gold purified in the fire. Give us faith, Lord, to hold on to this, but ultimately that you would hold on to us. Which is why we come to the table this morning and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.